it's an undoing of history, bringing us back to the garden. Hey, this is Unrefined Podcast. Welcome to another episode. Hey, 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 you guys. This is Brandon with another episode and with my co-host, Lindsay. Hey, guys. And an awesome guest who needs no introduction, but I will introduce him. It's the Pastor Doug Van Dorn. That's great to be with you guys. We're going to dive into some interesting topics, I think. I think it's a, probably a topic that Doug doesn't talk a lot about on podcast. I don't know if he'll have to tell me if he does or not. But uh, I wanted to start off with just basically talking about what's, what's going on in the world. And I read your posts a lot, Doug. Well, actually, <laughs> just about all of them. And, you know, you have such a pulse on what's really going on and stuff you know what what do you think is is going on with just the economy and politics and all that kind of stuff and 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 the big question i'd like to ask you is what do you think about the whole trump ron desantis thing what do you think's gonna huh. kind of pull down there yeah i mean well for for three years anyway i think the world has been able to see some things that we have not been allowed to see before. And I think that I would chalk that up to some divine providence and also some mm-hmm. very um, deliberate maneuvers on the part of um, what I think is the, the good side of a war that we're fighting. So I, I actually believe that we are in a war. Sometimes I yeah. joke with people that we're actually still in World War I and we're kind of seeing it come to its culmination. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you've talked about, what was it, fifth, is it fifth generation Fifth generation warfare, warfare yep. Yeah, can you unpack that? I've, I've been wanting to ask you what that is. I mean, can you kind of describe that for us? I can say briefly that, um, yeah, you know, you have, different, you have different generations of warfare, kind of your classic warfare started, you know, ages and ages ago, just kind of going on battlefields and stuff. And over the course of time, as technology increases, you move to, you know, area warfare, tank warfare, all this kind of stuff. And um, guerrilla warfare was an introduction. I don't remember which generation that was. But the fifth generation warfare is a warfare uh, really using words and ideas yeah. and thought and trying mm-hmm. to control the mind of the other side. Um, so you're not necessarily attacking them with conventional warfare, at least not at the beginning. You know, you're trying right. to take over a civilization through um, ideas, philosophies, changing their language, you know, kind of classic communism sort of stuff, but so information warfare, basically information warfare. So yeah, info I mean, wars, you know, no, info wars. Yeah. When he <laughs> says that he, he actually kind of was, had the pulse. He was right. He ago. did. He's been right on a lot of things. I mean, he, he just, he really was. Yep. He's a bit crazy, but I guess you have to be to, to kind of do what he does. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, a bit crazy, but yeah, I agree. Yeah, he's been, he's been right on a lot of things. The reason I wanted to bring all this up is because 
this this leads into our our topic today and i wanted to ask you just and i'm going to caveat that it is speculation do you speculate doug that that we live in a time that's different than any other time that's been around can you see even in your lifetime and we're close to the same age i i know i can i can see such a dramatic dif- i can see such a dramatic difference in the past 3 years like you said and do you believe that we're entering into an unprecedented time? Uh, it's such a hard question for me to answer. I because, know. Um, well, I mean, we're going to talk about eschatology, right? So, right, right, um, right. So many people, when they answer that question, they just kind of go right to Revelation or something. And that's not what I right. do. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't think that we might not be entering into something um, apocalyptic. But I don't know right. that I tie that necessarily to any particular scripture or whatever, certainly not my eschatology um, directly, maybe indirectly. So that, I mean, this is kind of, I'm sounding kind of fuzzy because it's a hard question for me to answer. I mean, on, on one hand, there's no question that we're living in unprecedented times in all of world history. I mean, you've never had the ability to destroy every human being on the planet um, until, you know, obviously before our lifetimes, but not much before it. Um, the whole artificial intelligence thing, transhumanism thing, that's never, people might've had ideas of wanting to do that, but the way that we're able to do it today is completely unprecedented in all of world history. Um, being able to take down people with viruses and to genetically manipulate food and, and, uh, human DNA, the way that we do it, it's completely unprecedented. So Yes, we are totally living in unprecedented times. Um, we're living in, uh, like I said, if we're living kind of near the end of end or climax of World War One or something, it's been a long time coming. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if people want me to go the direction of, you know, well, what do you think about, you know, Jesus coming back and all this kind of stuff? That's where yeah. I just don't know. I mean, I. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I teach so much on the first coming. And one of the things that's striking to me about Jesus' first coming is that nobody, like they, they were expecting Messiah. So when Messiah came, many people were able to say, yeah, this is the Messiah. But he didn't come the way they thought he was going to come. Mm, and he point. completely disappointed their expectations because he had a plan that was hidden um, in plain sight in the Old Testament, but also cloaked from their view. So, that kind of, to me, is a warning that maybe when he returns again, things might be a little bit different than what probably all of us think. And um, it's just, you know, it's, I just think it's so interesting to look at the times we're living in just on that basis alone without even having to speculate whether or not right. this is like the very end. It's just um, Confucius, I think, said, may you live in interesting times. And that's totally what we live in. <laughs> and It's fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah, I used to get, because uh, uh, I was raised, I think most people in America, for some reason, were raised pre-trib, pre-millennialist, and, and I got real disenchanted with it. And the, the biggest thing that disenchanted it with me is I would look at foreign mission fields, and I would see the incredible tribulation that China and parts of Asia and Russia and North Korea and these different countries are going through. And how can we as Americans say, oh, yeah, well, so America goes, so goes the tribulation when they're going through it, you know, and, and that's when I, I began to really kind of look at 
the book of Revelation, but not just with Revelation, but with Daniel and the prophetic Old Testament scriptures as well. And I, I was a partial preterist for a while, and I'm still not completely convinced that there's not some things that absolutely have been true. It's kind of a it's kind of a Duke's mixture of me being I'm a I'm a realized futurist. I don't know if that's even. <laughs> yeah that's more or less where i am too yeah i mean and i think we get we call we call it orange and orange and an apple and apple and i think sometimes we can conflate things jesus said into being all one thing and he's he's not he's not talking that way at all hey my unrefined friends i just want to tell you guys that i am so thankful that you are my life some of our best fans uh, have been writing to us and and I, I just so encouraged about how lives are being transformed and people are getting something out of this podcast. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's why we're doing this is to glorify Jesus and to just look at the world and have a, a more open view of the seen and the unseen and the supernatural in the world. So while we're doing that, we're going to handle all different kinds of topics. See, what I'd like for you to be involved in or part of is our members only group. Things that are coming in our members only group that are going to just blow your mind. Not to mention, there's going to be episodes in there that you won't be able to hear just on the normal episode channel. So make sure to visit our website at unrefinedpodcast.com and check out our members only community. I just can't stress the fact that, you know, we're after building a community and there's, there's so much out there you guys and there's so much coming i really believe we need to build these strong communities of christ followers to to be able to handle what might be coming in the in the future days we're sure that you'd be a good fit and we cannot wait i can't wait to see you there This show today, everybody, is about eschatology, one of those fun things that everybody loves to argue about. But uh, we're not going to argue today because uh, Doug is awesome, and I really respect him, and I want to learn from him today because I think his take on the end times is a little different, and it has possibly some speculation about the giants and the Nephilim and their part in it, too. And so that's what we kind of want to... So I'm going to turn it over to Doug now and let him set us up and just talk about his journey through eschatology. <laughs> well, I think like you guys, it sounds like both of you, um, I grew up in a dispensational, uh, at least family, and probably most of the people in the churches I grew up in. Uh, so yeah. we always argued about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. and. So I never even heard that there was anything else at all mm -hmm. out there. And, you know, I, I went to college in 1988. That was my freshman year up at a Christian college in St. Paul. And there was this dude who had come out with this book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return <laughs> in 1988. I remember and, that book. Um, I mean, we were, uh, <laughs> it was like our first month at school. And the entire the entire school was just on edge completely freaking about about how Jesus was going to come back in the rapture you know that weekend and then of course it didn't happen and um the few who who didn't buy into all that were told you so sort of things 
Funny thing is that that guy came out with another book the next year. He said he missed one reason. <laughs> so he came out with 89 <laughs> reasons in 89. And that one didn't sell as many copies as the first one did. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, so these predictions, there was, I think there was a big one in 1994, um, 1996. Obviously, Y2K. Uh, t- yeah. 2007 had another big one. 2012 had a big one. You know, we've had Aztec. All these, yeah, wouldn't the Aztec one? 2012, the Aztec yeah, calendar. I mean, that's why they yeah. made that movie. But they were capitalizing on <laughs> on the end of the world apocalyptic <laughs> stuff that people were talking about. So at some point, you know, I just grew, I just grew tired of it. In fact, mm-hmm. I remember when it was. I was a youth pastor about 1994. I think it was that particular one, and. All the kids wanted me to teach on Revelation because Jesus is coming back. And I had already seen these things fail a few times. And I'm like, ah, all right, I'll do it. And so I taught them from this old 100-year-old book by a guy named Clarence Larkin called Dispensational Truth. And he had this little section at the end called like the Dispensational Truth of the Great Pyramid and how the pyramid has like all the exact timelines lining up to uh, the end of the world starting in 19 essentially 1994 that's when the rapture would have to happen and it was all focused on is that the one with uh is that the one with all the cool artwork all the and charts, stuff in it baby all the yeah. charts <laughs> oh yeah so much so much fun i mean i i had a great time with it and i had gone through it before and i've learned a lot from that guy you know i actually consider him one of my early mentors in terms of books book reading and stuff yeah i think he's a christian but i think he's totally wrong on Mm-hmm. on his reading of the scripture and on his take on the rapture millennium and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I told the kids, I said, look, I'm going to teach this. And if it doesn't come true this year, I'm done with it because I think this is as good a year as any that it could happen. And if it doesn't happen, then it just means that I have no idea what I'm talking about. So it didn't happen. And I really put away eschatology for a long time. And, uh, yeah, I'm a reformed guy. And at that point in time, I was kind of becoming more that way. And so I just kind of put the eschatology aside, started thinking about the soteriology and how we're saved and those kinds of questions. Yeah. And the people that I started listening to um, actually indirectly were teaching eschatology, and I had no idea that they were doing it, which was really interesting to think about. Because hmm. usually it's kind of in your face. I mean, you just talk about the rapture, you know, all the all the crazy things that are going to happen and you just go through the the different chapters of revelation and what, what trumpet's going to go off, hit this point, you know, that kind of stuff. But this was, was indirect and I did not understand what they were doing to my brain. And at some point in time, having just listened to them over a long period of time, I just kind of found myself in a totally different eschatological camp. Once I realized that there even was such a thing, I'm like, Oh, I guess that's what I am now. (laughs) So the way that they taught this was by talking about um, what is often the way that it's presented in the New Testament between two ages. Okay, so you have you'll have them you'll have these dichotomies of this age and the age to come, the present age, the age to come, the um, this present evil age and the age to come. So two ages. Mm-hmm. Um, very simple way of doing it. It's not all the time that it talks about that. I think we can get into this later where it, um, I think Paul in maybe Ephesians talks about many different ages uh, in, in the ages gone past and in the ages to come. So it's not like the Bible only sees two ages, but for the sake of eschatology, 
That's exactly right. what it does. That and, sounds like George um, George Ladd. It does he, in some ways, yeah. And so George yeah. Ladd is a historic premillennialist, um, but that's still in the premillennial camp. Um, and what I didn't understand is that these guys were teaching me a different view of the millennium than what premillennialism was. Right. Which is called, and I hate the word because it was really given by its opponents as kind of a curse word. Um, and it's not even a true in, in what it, in what it says, but it's the amillennial view of scripture. Mm. So there's really three, three millennial views. There's premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And uh, essentially what you're, what you're talking about there is, is Jesus going to return before a millennium or after a millennium? And actually, when you just put it in that way, there's only two views. There's pre and post. Because the post mill and the on mill both believe Jesus will return after the millennium. Yeah. Um, but, the, but they separate because, for, for some kind of interesting reasons, you know, uh, I think that the premillennial view that, that I grew up in, very America or, and or British-centered, <laughs> and yeah. like you guys said, they don't seem to care about what's going on in um, famines in Ethiopia or uh, persecutions in China or whatever. It's just kind of what's yeah. happening with me. And it's very yeah. much newspaper eschatology oriented. So you pick up the paper. Oh my goodness, I just saw that the uh, prime minister of Israel was assassinated. Jesus has to be coming back. That kind of stuff. And yeah. premillennialism always seems to flourish when things are going bad in a culture. So during World War I, World War II, um, the Cold War, premillennialism went crazy. Um, during the Gilded Age, during the Roaring Twenties, um, you know, those kinds of things, postmillennialism seems to do better. Because in some ways, I think. Um, probably should be some guys out there that might disagree with me, but I think post-millennialism is kind of doing the same thing pre-mill does, except, except it's more on the optimistic thing. It says, see, look, things are getting better. And so we must be kind of moving into the millennium. So for those guys, it's not like this sharp break between you're not in the millennium and then you are with like a seven-year tribulation in between. For them, it's right. kind of like, it's kind of like, it's like the question of when do you, when, when is a person bald? Like how many hairs do you have to lose before that you're bald? <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, is it all of them? Is it, well, most of them, you know, just the top of the head. That's kind of what post-millennialism yeah. is. Like, when are you in the millennium? Um, and you just kind of find yourself, you just kind of find yourself that you're now you're in it. So. Well, I asked a guy the other day, a, a, a full preterist, which I don't think is, Orthodox, anyway. That's that's just my opinion. I agree with you, you know, on that. I was asking him. He was talking about uh, all the things that, that the world getting better. And I asked him. I said, "Now, if 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 we're going to look at this from a Christian viewpoint, an eschatological viewpoint, wouldn't the church be the instrument that's making the world better? But it looks like to me, it's the world that's making the world yeah. better with tech, with technology and stuff. And how could that?" How can you even use that as a as an indication of see the world's getting better? Yeah, all yeah. the elites are making things better. You know, they're making they're going to give us transhumanism. They're going to give us eternal life. We give us implants. You know, I mean, yeah, the world is getting better, but is the church the 
there's a Latin word for it. Is it the, 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 the modus operandi, I guess, of, of what's creating the world being better? I mean, do you understand what I'm saying, Doug? Oh, 100%. It, it, yeah, the question of better is, uh, are you talking materialistically? Are you talking technologically? Are you talking yeah, spiritually? Uh, new yeah. world order? Are you talking um, Gnosticism? Are you, I mean, what is your ca- what's your categories for what makes it We're better? eating better than ever, but our kids <laughs> don't know what gender they are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yep. So um, I guess go, go back to the, the two-age thing. Um, what, yeah. what they were talking about was if you can imagine a, a, a line, a, his, a line of history that really goes from Adam to the, um, the time of Christ when he was here first coming. And imagine that this is the ground and we're standing on the ground. Then you have, um, you have another line that's above you and it kind of represents heaven. And that line starts um, when Jesus is uh, here. It is first coming, and then it goes on all the way into eternity future. So you have two, two horizontal lines. One represents the old age on the bottom, and, or the, you know, the, this present age. Let me put it that way, not the old age, but this present age or this present evil age. Or we could talk about it as the flesh. And then on the top, you have um, the age to come. And so what's interesting then is that you have the age to come and the present evil age overlapping. They're both there when Jesus is there. In fact, there's two vertical lines that you can now put. The first vertical line is Jesus first coming and the second vertical line is his second coming. Okay. So what you have then is an, a, a kind of a square overlap between this present age and the age to come so that we're, our feet are in this present age, but our head, um, which is Christ. So it, what it uses is the metaphor of the head and the body of the church. Jesus is the head of yeah. the church, the, and the church is this body. So right. his body is on the earth. That's the church. And we're standing in the present evil age. But the head is in heavens, in the heavenly realms. He's ascended into glory and power. And um, he, he, is, he is now squarely in the age to come. And because the head and the body are attached together, we're in both at the same time. So actually, a historic pre-mill like, like George Ladd can actually have kind of the same, same view, where they would disagree is really on the question of, of the millennium, but not necessarily on the two ages. So I think that's good, because it shows that, that between the millennial views, you can actually have quite a bit of... Uh, common ground when it when you're talking about what we're looking at here but for me yeah. the guys that we're talking about this were actually all amillennial and so amillennial is a word that like i said was given kind of by the opponents of the view who didn't like it and the the, the letter a is just a negation without and the millennial is the millennium so it's without the millennium so like an atheist is without god somebody who does not believe in god so literally the word means that an amillennialist does not believe in the millennium, but nothing could be further from the truth. (laughs) An amillennialist rather believes that we are in the millennium right now. And that's where they would disagree from probably most post millers. I don't think most post mill guys think that we're in the millennium right now. Although maybe some of them have changed their mind. I don't know. Um, and certainly no premillennialist believes we're in the millennium right now. So that's, that's what distinguishes 
the awe mill view from the post mill view. Yeah, can um Doug, could you I've never understood in the premillennial uh viewpoint what what is the purpose of the millennium? Is it 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 almost seems like it's just like it's there in the Bible, so we have to say it's like real and it's there, but we really don't know what it's for. Uh I mean, I know that's not your expertise, but can you kind of explain what what is the purpose of the millennium in the premillennial stance? Well, I think it's Jesus coming back in his uh, glory as king to rule physically on the earth um, right. before before the eternal state is brought about. Okay. Um, you know, in my mind, as an Amil guy, I I actually take the the passages that they read for being millennial passages, like the lion right. and the lamb will lie down together, that kind of thing in Isaiah. I take that to be talking about the eternal state, not the millennium. Hmm. Okay, so what you you know, I think in that same same passage in Isaiah, it talks about how the child will you know live to be a hundred years or a thousand years or whatever, and the whole idea is that death is kind of taken away. And well, I think that's metaphorical language for the eternal state, but they take it kind of more literally and say, well, no, there's still there's still going to be death, but at the end of the millennium, and so it's kind of like because they read it in that more literal way, literalistic way, let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I think reading, I think reading something spiritually is actually reading it literally because I believe sure. the spiritual world is literal. It's just not yes. physical. So what they're doing is they're reading it physically. And so because there's, for instance, death there, um, there, there has to be an end to that millennium. And then they kind of have a bad time again. And then Jesus comes back um, and ushers in the eternal state. So I think for them, it's it's just really Jesus is uh, he's ruling as king in a reconstituted um, nation of Israel over the Jews. That's another kind of important part of that, because um, especially with dispensationalism, um, you know, God kind of set aside the Jewish people for a while so that he could save Gentiles. But he's going to go back to dealing with the Jewish people at some point in time as a biological group of people where he's going to save them all. And then everybody's going to live happily for a thousand years. So those passages you talked about were, I know there's a couple in Isaiah where where, uh, seems like it's the age to come, but people are still dying. I'll be honest. Those always confused me too. Sure. Um, yeah. well, well, there's and it's easy why. to say, well, that's got to be this millennial view, but maybe that's just as close as the Hebrew mind could get to, you know, thinking about eternity around that time. I don't know. That's something I've always thought about. Yeah, I think that, you know, when when we have a very spe- specific kind of modernistic, materialistic way of reading everything that we read, we interpret our entire world through a scientific worldview. Mm-hmm. So we kind of import that back into the, into the scripture when that might not be at all what they're talking about. So if you have death in a passage like that, and you were to ask Isaiah, what are you talking about? Are people going to literally die? He'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to, I'm trying to talk about how good things are going to be. <laughs> yeah. And putting death in it just kind of gives you a, a even greater backdrop of how good things are going to be. So, 
Yeah, I, I feel that way about the historical grammatical way of looking at the Bible. I, I believe in it. I agree with it. I think it's the primary foundation for how we should read the Bible. But at the same time, it, it's, it's a very modernistic way of reading the Bible that the first century or the second temple period wouldn't have known about. You know, they read the Bible differently than that. That's more of a, an enlightenment way of reading the Bible, even though I don't want to discredit it because I use it. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, to, to one degree or another, I think we all read the Bible. I think, I think we read every book. And I think everybody has always read every book to some degree from an historical grammatical point of view. You want to know what the grammar says. You want to know what yeah. it meant in its yeah. context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I know I completely agree that this is not the, the category that they had in mind, especially in more of their metaphysics. So maybe it's not a hermeneutics question. It's more a metaphysics question. What do they mean yeah. by spirit and, and matter, that kind of stuff? Yeah, good point. Yeah. I just don't understand how sometimes the, that the book of Revelation, it, which is obviously loaded with symbolism, is like a book that people try to read so literal. And I mean that in a, you know, not a literal, I guess not literal, in a literalistic sense, you know. And it's, it's just so obvious that you, can, you can't possibly read that without knowing the context of, of what it was written in and, the, and the, just the symbols and all the different stuff that they used. And I mean, I think about uh, who is the, uh, the, the famous guy that wrote the lot of Hal Lindsey and how he, you know, took these <laughs> monsters and made them helicopters. And which is funny, right? Because he, he prides himself on the literal view. So how come yeah. his literal view isn't that these are like exactly scorpion well, lion just monsters out of hell. Why do they have tales, to be a helicopter? Yeah. It's so weird. Well, and, and I've done enough, you know, ancient Near East uh, diving to see that there's there's mythological monsters with scorpions. I mean, I'm I'm studying right now, and and, and I wanted to share this with you, Doug. Uh, the the fish app of in Lake Van up there, and the the uh, I read your sermon on Leviathan, and I thought about it. It's the those those fish apps that that are all in Armenia that they're everywhere sticking up, and it's a bull and a fish. And and it's like hearkening back to Leviathan, connected to that Lake Van. Lake Van. And I thought about your your sermon about you know eat, feeding on Leviathan, feeding on um, Jesus, and yeah. and and that. But uh, at the, it just it, it it amazes me that that we we believe in these creatures. I mean, if if we can believe that Jesus is both 100% God and man, and he was born of a virgin. Why can't we believe that these things in in Revelation are literally monsters or something like that? Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm all over the place, but... <laughs> sure, I, I don't know. Like, this is a tough question to me because, um, you know, you, you read, especially the more liberal guys, and when they talk about Leviathan, they will entirely spiritualize it. And so you see this right. even in study Bibles when, when uh, you know, what is the Leviathan? Does it represent, it's, well, it just purely represents chaos. That's all it is. It was just a metaphor. Yeah. And then on the other side of it, you have, you have guys trying to say, well, it was, a, it was an elephant or it was a crocodile or, you know, those kinds of things. And, and uh, you know, I, I have zero problem if Leviathan and Behemoth were actually either, um, either were like a dinosaur and a, and a dragon, or if they were modeled on those, 
either way, yeah. it doesn't matter to me. I don't know that. I don't know that if you were to to go to Peter and say, "Hey, Peter, do you think that there's a giant ple- plesiosaur that's living underneath the Sea of Galilee?" That he'd be like, "Oh yeah, totally." But <laughs> if you were to say, "Hey, Peter, do you think Leviathan lives in in the Sea of Galilee?" I think he could say, "Yeah," <laughs> because the sea is chaos. It's, it represents mm. chaos. It's the embodiment mm-hmm. of chaos. And again, see yeah. what we're doing there, even in our questions that we bring to this, it's sort of like we have this modernistic impulse yeah. to say, well, it has to be physical. Yeah. Well, maybe. I don't, like I said, I don't have a problem if it is. And I actually kind of think it probably it, in some way either is modeled on it or, or was one of those. But I don't know that that's a question that they were even asking. Right. Yeah, that's it. We're not asking the same questions because we're so far removed from their their culture, and and I don't know if we'll ever get back to asking the same questions. Maybe we will in the days of Noah. I don't know, but uh, all all I got to say is if Nephilim come back in their giant form, we'll be asking some questions then. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, sorry, Doug. I don't mean to keep taking you off target, chasing rabbits. <laughs> Oh, these are, I mean, there's all great things. There's a million ways to go with this, guys. So it's yeah. such a deep and, and, you know, interesting topic, I think. That I think so, too. Just a thousand ways you can go with it. So in, any of these questions and bunny trails, are, I think, are perfectly legitimate. Um, you know, I was going to say one thing is that I think one of the reasons why people will read revelation and the images and numbers and everything in it. So literal, literally or physically, uh, is because, and I think this is especially true with old school dispensationalism. People just don't know their old Testament mm. and they don't know. Mm. And they also don't know how to read. They don't know how to read books. They don't read books. Um, that's a, that's a huge problem. They especially mm-hmm. don't read apocalyptic literature, so they've never immersed themselves in books like Enoch or Baruch or um, the Sibylline Oracles or anything like that to, to see how images are used, let alone Gilgamesh Epic or Baal Cycle or any of that kind of stuff. So they just don't, they don't know how the images have been used traditionally. They're not familiar with them. They don't, a lot of times people don't even know that they're coming from the Old Testament. And so they just... They just have this one book in front of them, the book of Revelation, and they just start reading it. And not only do they mm. not have the, the background that they really ha- need, that, that I think that virtually everyone in, in the, as the original audience would have automatically had, they also read the book um, the way that they read um, a novel or, or a, a history book. So they read it chronologically and they just assume that this book is chronological. And that's actually where I think the biggest, the biggest divergence from the millennial views occurs because people are, are saying, well, chapter two happens after chapter one, chapter three happens after chapter two, all the way up to chapter 20 happens after chapter 19, because they've read the book chronologically. And if you read the book chronologically, and that's the way John meant it to be read, then I can see I can see why you would come to that conclusion. But the question really needs to be: How are we supposed to read the book? How how is it presenting itself to us? We shouldn't come to Revelation with an assumption and never challenge the assumption. We need to we need to do some investigation first into the book to figure out if 
if it tells us how it wants to be read, and then we can read it the way that it wants us to read it. Well, too, Doug, correct me if I'm wrong here. Knowing John, we've read the book of John. We've read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Knowing how he writes, knowing how his gospel is presented, which, to, in my opinion, is not entirely chronological. You know, it was it was put together very specifically for very specific purpose. It's very clear. Uh, why would we not take that into account as we read the book of Revelation? Does that make sense? Um, it I mean, makes more sense than you have any idea of, Brandon. So let me, <laughs> this, is, this is kind of where I wanted to go next with this was to John. Oh, I, need, I need to, <laughs> uh, I need to do a little bridge work before we do that. All right. Okay. So the first thing I, I want to give you just different literary and audience, different literary um, ways of thinking about this book and, and how it presents itself to us. So the first thing that we need to talk about is um, something called a chiasm. And this is becoming mm -hmm. more popular. More people are learning about what chiasms are, but still a lot of people have never even heard of the idea. Yeah, I studied in IBS. I inducted so, Bible study, baby. <laughs> exactly. They're, and they're actually, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that pretty much this was the way that the ancient mind thought. So we think mm -hmm. linearly. We, yes. be, we think beginning to end. Okay, you have a line and it's just start, end. And that's the way we outline books. So think about it, you know, go to any outline in a, in a study Bible and it'll say point one, point two, point three, point four, then you're done. That's how the book is ordered. Linear, right? But I, yep. I think that the ancient mind thought, I don't know that it's right to call it a circle, but in ki it kind of is because it comes back in on itself. And they do this in little sections like paragraphs. They do it in entire books. They even do it in verses. So when Jesus says, uh, the first will be last and the last will be first, that's a chiasm, very simple one mm -hmm. in one verse. You have first, last, last verse. If you put letters to it, you have A, B, B, A. A stands for first, B stands for last. And what it's done is it's closed in on itself. So it begins and ends at the same place, and then it has a middle. So um, if you have an A, B, C, B, A, then you have, you have a single uh, verse that's a middle. You can have an A, B, C, C, B, A. You can go all the way out as far as you want. You know, A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, I mean, and then all the way back in if you want to. And when you do that, then you're, you're deliberately paralleling things on either side uh, so that those letters match up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I so, wrote down la-di-da-da-di-la -da -da here. I don't know. What that <laughs> That's just my weirdo way. It's of like it. That's a, there's, your, there's your chiasm. <laughs> <laughs> so Revelation... The book of Revelation is a chiasm, and this is very important for people to understand. Um, and it's chiastic on some uh, pretty amazing levels. So the very center of the book is in chapter 12, where Satan is cast out of heaven by Michael the archangel. Very center of the book. On either side of that, you have the woman fleeing into the wilderness. On either side of that, you have the dragon. On either side of that, you have a woman again. On either side of that, you have two, two witnesses and two beasts. 
On either side of that, you have 144,000. On either side of that, you have seven seals and seven bowls. On either side of that, you have seven epistles to seven angels and seven angels. And then you have a prologue and epilogue. All of that's pointing to a center. And the center is where Satan is cast out of heaven. Now, believe it or not, uh, one scholar, this guy named Warren Gage, who, who uh, professor out at um, Knox Theological Seminary for a while, I think, in Florida, he takes this chiasm, goes all the way from A to Z, and it, you're only halfway through the book. So then it goes A, A, B, B, C, C, all the way to Y, Y. So in other words, it has almost two full alphabets worth of chiasms that go to the center of the book. Now that's mm. insane and totally deliberate and gives you very important theology that Christ is conquering the devil. But it also says, mm, maybe if things are repeating, that maybe I'm not supposed to read this as linearly as I thought I was. Mm. Okay. Second one comes off of that. And this is uh, a little bit different way of thinking about the book of Revelation, which is in terms of cycles. So there's seven cycles in this book, according to the way a lot of people read it. Um, and that's an important number because seven is a massive number in Revelation, and seven is the perfect number. Right. So that's what it represents. Seven days of the week, right? Um, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So when the week is over, you start a new week again because you've completed the whole thing. So seven cycles would bring you to a, com a completion. And the way I view these seven cycles is imagine one of these circular staircases that go up, like maybe in a rampart of a castle or something. Mm-hmm. And let's say that you're on like facing north and every time you get due north, there's another window that looks out. And so when you start at the bottom, you're looking out due north and you're standing on the ground. But then when you go around a full circle of these stairs, now you're up higher and you have a better, better, higher view, but you're still standing in the exact same vertical axis that you were before. And you can do that all the way up to seven times so that when you get to the very top, you've got a, you've got a great view you know, of the whole landscape out around you, but you're still standing in the same vertical axis. So essentially the, the cycles be, are, are chapter or chapters one through three. So that takes you through the beginning and then through the churches. Okay. The seven churches, letter to seven churches. And then uh, cycle two is chapters four through seven. And that ends in a judgment day. And by the way, um, the, the letters to the churches call you to persevere, persevere through to the judgment day. Mm. Cycle three is seven trumpets, chapters eight through 11. It ends in a judgment day. Cycle four, chapters 12 through 14, persecution of the dragon in the church ends in a judgment day. Cycle five is the vision of the seven bowls ends in a judgment day. Cycle six, fall of Babylon and the church's vindication ends in a judgment day. Cycle seven, uh, chapters 20, 20 to 22, is ending in a judgment day, but at the very last chapter, you have this vindication of the righteous. And so it takes you kind of the, to the top of the castle, if you want to look at it that way, and gives you 
this great view that actually is a chiasm with Genesis 1. So the whole Bible mm. ends up being chiastic because you begin and end in the Garden of Eden, and then you have everything in the middle. Oh, wow. Those judgment days and several of those are actually using almost the exact same language of like the grapes of wrath and treading on the wine. And, and uh, when you read it, it sounds like it's talking about the same thing, especially when you put them side by side. So the reason this matters is because if you're reading the book chronologically, so let's go to like a dispensational reading of the book. What they'll do is they'll say, yeah, chapters one through three are, they definitely seem different. So the way I heard it was um, Jesus is writing those first three chapters to the church, but then the rapture happens. And then the rest of the book is talking about the Jews and it's all chronological. And so all the rest of it is just Jew chapter after Jew chapter. Then you get to the judgment day in, cha in chapter 19. And then you have this happy thing going on at the beginning of chapter 20, where the Satan is bound for a millennium. And then you have another judgment going on at the end of chapter 20. So that, oh, that must be a totally different um, war. And so all these other judgment days that I said end cycles, they read those as kind of different battles. And, uh, it, you know, at the end, we kind of end at the same place, but how you get there is really, really different. Um, and that's because of how we're reading the book. And the question again yeah. is, how does the book want us to read itself? And that's the question that we can't impose upon it. We have to ask it how it wants to be read. And so what I'm suggesting is that the book actually gives us internal clues that says, I don't want you to read me, um, linearly, I want you to read me uh, cyclically, or at least chiastically, something like that. And when you do that, you, you automatically have to start coming to some pretty different conclusions than uh, what you would if you're reading it completely linearly. So I'll stop there, see if you guys have any questions or thoughts about it. Yeah. I have a comment. This 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 is really interesting, and I'm going to bring in my one of my passions to this is the guitar. I watched a video of a guy kind of explaining Eddie Van Halen and how he did stuff. He had something they called the Franken scale, and what and, and without getting too technically for our audience, uh, musically technical music theory, he would like in the key of A, he would he would take the the notes in the key of A, and he would start the root note would be a and he would go all up and down the fretboard as long as he ended at another root note that was part of that scale and so it was almost like it was chaotic in between he could put sharps and flats and chromatics and all kinds of weird stuff but as long as he started with a root note in the scale and ended in the root note in the scale it it all kind of it, it it was just Eddie's signature sound, and and I'm saying all that because that kind of reminds me of of what we're talking about here, except it's a little more ordered. But but I think through history, it it it, it instead of going in just very neat cycles, like I would say, like what uh, uh, Marx or some of those guys would probably, you know, go after. It, it's it's sort of it's a chaotic cycle just because of the nature of the world and, and all that, that sort of stuff. But it ends, like you said, from perfection, the root note, and it, and it starts from the root note in Genesis and ends in the root note in that last cycle in Revelation. 
And uh, that, anyway, that was just, I think in music, uh, Doug, I mean, it's just my, my thing. And now that I'm learning to play the guitar, I, I totally see it everywhere. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's a perfect analogy. It, in fact, it's even, it's, it's very perfect because how many notes are there? There's the seven notes and then you have the eighth, which is the octave that takes you from C to C, for example. Right. Yep. So it's the same thing that I just, it's just the musical version of what I just said with a, with a castle, because you start on a lower A, you go through all the notes, and then you end up on a higher A, but it's the same A. Yeah. <laughs> it's just an yeah. octave up. You can go all yeah. the way up and down. Even how many octaves are there on a piano? There's a bunch, but you can hit the same note all over that keyboard. And what I'm saying is that I think that Revelation is doing the same thing. It's hitting the same notes on a yes. keyboard, uh, but they're higher frequency. Yeah. Well, interesting, and I'm not trying to be a Kabbalist or a Gematria, Gematria kind of guy, but but there's seven notes in a scale, <laughs> which is fascinating, and and then there's you know there's there's we have twelve notes total, which is another interesting number that's twelve, you know. Anyway, so that's just a little side. That's a, that's definitely a rabbit, but I think that's kind of <laughs> cool too. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I totally, I think in, I, I think in a picture like that, I totally see what, what, what you're saying. It's, it's a scale, so to speak. Goes up, goes down. Well, how about this? Um, okay. Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 both seem to reference the Gog and Magog war mm -hmm. from Ezekiel, what is it, 38 and 39, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yet, a lot of people would have you believe that that's two different events. Um, so Separated that kind of killed my pre-mill right. view. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Is that kind of the same thing? Is that that's exactly the same thing. It's a great specific analogy. I think I did some work on that on my, on my sermon on either, either, either one of those chapters. I don't remember which one, but when probably the second one, you start to realize that, oh my goodness, he's drawing this imagery from the exact same passage in both of these yeah. wars. So how can it possibly be two different yeah. wars separated by a thousand years? doesn't yeah, make yeah. a lot of sense. Especially when in Ezekiel, it's just one war. Yep. But that's, called, that's, that's just how you write literature. And that's how they wrote this specific kind of literature. And that's how the ancient mind used to think. And so getting into their context out of our own can be helpful in at least letting people um, what would be the right way to put this? Uh, at least letting them think about maybe there's another way to read this book than what I've always yeah. considered. You know, I don't care if people come to a different conclusion than I do on Revelation. I mean, right. I all, all these views have been orthodox. Dispensationalism, maybe not because it's so new, but certainly premillennialism is maybe the oldest view that we have in the church. Although, although uh, I think I might argue with that, but. Um, Hey, I think amillennial is pretty old, Doug. I mean, I really do. It is. A, and yeah, yeah I, I think so too. And I don't think that Augustine originated it like you hear no. so many people say. I think it goes back. Justin Martyr, I think in the dialogue with, with Trifo, says his premillennial view, that there are people who disagree with his premillennial view that exactly. he thinks are godly people. So Exactly. So all, all I'm doing is this for is to help people see that they're there's more than one way to read the book. And I think we all just want to find out what the book actually means. Right. And I will say again, that I don't know if I, how explicit I was earlier, but I think we all kind of actually can end up 
in very similar places. Mm. And so just how we get there might be a little different. Yeah. You guys want me to take you into the John stuff? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And then, yeah. And then don't forget, we want to hit the giant stuff, the Nephilim stuff and how it might tie into <laughs> all this too. So I don't want to keep you all, all day, right. Doug, but yep. you know, this is fun. I'll talk as long as you guys want to talk. You want to go for two hours. I don't care. <laughs> I don't think we've had a two hour, but people listen to them, man. I listen to the blurry guys and when they're, when their stuff is hour and a half hour, and 45 minutes, I listen to the whole thing. If it let's go as long as we need to go. Cause I don't yep. want to make, I don't want to shortchange this. So yeah, cool. Um, all right. John. So here's the thing with John. Uh, and this is, I'll just kind of, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, uh, set it up in terms of give you the ending of it and then we'll sh- see how I get there. My, in my opinion, the gospel of John is the earthly counterpart to revelation, which is, which is the heavenly side of it. And they're both mm. telling the exact same history. And they're doing it from the perspective of three and a half, three and a half sort of thing. So it actually, this kind of is related to the whole tribulation question, Um, but in a very symbolic, different way of thinking about history. And this can kind of get complicated because you have to go back to to Daniel and his um, weeks and how there's one week left at the end, and how halfway through this week, um, there's a sacrifice of atonement that's made, and all this kind of stuff. And the, the honest fact is, when you start looking at Daniel 9 and that, and that prophecy, nobody is able to make sense of it perfectly. No view yeah. is. Yeah. And so the way that I look at it is that you have the first three and a half years of that last week make a lot of sense to me, because that that is Jesus's ministry on this earth that culminates in his uh, death and resurrection. But then you have this last three and a half um, time frame that is, it can't possibly be a literal historical timeline because that would have ended in sometime in the 30s AD. And nobody thinks, nobody thinks that that's the case. So what you end up having is to kind of have, have a, a physical, literal, um, historical first three and a half years, and then a spiritual, symbolic three and a half years that complements it. So that the first, again, is the head, which is Christ, the person of Christ in his ministry. And then the second three and a half is his body, his mystical body on the earth. And uh, that three and a half takes you all the way between the first coming and the second coming. That's how I look at it. And why would I do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because of how I understand John and Revelation to be paralleling each other. And the first time I came across this, my jaw was on the floor. So essentially, John has edited these two books so that chapter one of John parallels chapter one of Revelation. Chapter two of John parallels chapter two of Revelation. And that goes all the way through chapter by chapter to the end. So that chapter 21 parallels chapter 22 of Revelation. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. even weirder than that. And, and, so it's, and it's very specific and detailed. So here's a, just two examples. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The very last couple of verses of Revelation, 
I am the beginning and the end. Uh, here's the last verse of, Revel- of John. If they were written, the world could not contain the books. And here's the, almost the first verse of Revelation. What you see right in a book. So what I've just done there is I've showed you wow. that the very first and last of Revelation matchup and the very last of John and first of Revelation matchup. So this goes all the way through both books. Okay, so, so is it like a big chiasm? Is that, it's, is that what it's, it is? It's basically? a chiasm and an inverse chiasm together at the same time. So yeah. Oh, uh, wow. Sorry, I didn't yeah, I didn't tell you the second part. I, I read the verses without telling you. So not only does chapter one match up with chapter one, but the last chapter of John matches up with the first chapter of Revelation. The next chap next to last chapter of John matches up with the second chapter of Revelation all the way to the first chapter of John matches the last chapter of Revelation. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, if it's Holy, really... If the, if the Holy Spirit's not involved <laughs> in that, man. I mean, that's just, that's, that's mind-blowing. Wow. It's completely mind-blowing. And uh, so I have a sermon. It's the very first sermon I did on Revelation. It's on our church's website under the Revelation okay. tab. The people can go and see a whole bunch of charts for this if they want to visualize all the things I'm talking about. I'm just looking at it as I'm talking to you guys. And that's just some of the stuff that's going on. Revelation is also kind of an undoing of history, where you've got Revelation 1 matching up with something in 1 Kings, um, Revelation 4 and 5 matching up with an earlier book in Samuel, Revelation 9 matching up with now Joshua, Revelation 15 going to Exodus, Revelation 20 going to Genesis 7, Revelation 21 going to Genesis 2, Revelation 22 going to Genesis 1. So it's an undoing of history, bringing us back to the garden. There's all kinds of crazy things going on in this book. But to go back to John, let's see if I can find this here. Uh, The very center of John matches up with the very center of Revelation. So remember how I said that the center of Revelation is essentially Satan who deceives the whole world was cast to the earth and his angels. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, now has come salvation and there were thunderings. Well, listen to the very center of John because John is also chiastic. I didn't get into that, but it's the same thing. Here's the center of John. Then a voice came from heaven. The people heard, said it thundered, thundered, others said an angel spoke, and Jesus says, now the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. Exact same thing. But one is talking about it from the ministry of Jesus' point of view. The other is talking about it from the perspective still of that, but in the context of the church now um, having you know, its birth, its origin through the woman, and then, then right after that, having to be thrown into the wilderness to be attacked by Satan. Already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Yeah, so um, that kind of takes you na- naturally to the millennial question. This is the bi- a big question people have. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people, first of all, a lot of people have never heard the John stuff. And it's, like I said, it's mind-blowing. And, but if you have the center of John and the center of Revelation talking about the exact same thing, of the world, ruler of the world being cast out. Um, and they're paralleling each other, beginning chapters to beginning, and then 
end to beginning inversely. You, you have to take that into consideration when you're trying to interpret this thing. You have to. Okay? Now, uh, if that's not enough, then we need to go to the millennial question. And what you end up having is essentially this, this center of revelation, this casting out of Satan, is now repeated in the beginning of Revelation 20. So that the devil is bound by someone who comes down, he's thrown into this abyss, and he's specifically bound for a specific reason. Uh, it's the exact same thing. In fact, a whole bunch of the same exact words are used in both places. In other words, what I'm saying is, Revelation 20 is talking about the very same thing that the center of Revelation and the center of John are talking about. And in John, he says, it happened right now. It's not something that's going to happen in some future millennium sometime. And the way that I interpret that is that means that the millennium has started already. Because in Revelation 20, where it's adding new material, it's calling it the millennium. And for various reasons, I think that the millennium is described sometimes as a millennium. Sometimes it's described as three and a half years. Uh, It's just different numbers are used to convey different ideas of it. Right. Okay. So, and is it literally a a literal thousand years? Well, obviously, if my view's right, then it can't be (laughs) because we're a thousand years past that already. So I take it as a symbolic number. Mm -hmm. And what else would one zero 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 be? It's not one zero zero two. You know, it's not thirteen hundred ninety five years. It's a thousand years. That's a symbolic number, which the whole rest of the book is filled with. So if that's true, then you have to start asking the question, how is it even possible for Satan to be bound and the millennium be now? Because the way most people read the idea of binding the binding of Satan is that he's completely eliminated from doing anything in this universe for a thousand years. Right? Right. Perfect heavenly bliss on earth. Nobody dies. There's no sin. Satan's locked up. Everybody believes in God. On and on and on. That's how they interpret the millennium to be. But I don't think that we have any reason to believe that that's how the millennium is going to be at all. Unless you unless you misinterpret passages that are talking about the end of the age and the eternal state with the millennium. But in my mind, that's a misinterpretation. Yeah, that's what I've been seeing all these years, is the millennium sounded like the end of the age to me, like the resurrection, Jesus is on his throne, and we're done. Exactly. I never understood understood why there had to be another thousand years of this, and then a re-release of Satan. Uh, It just didn't compute yeah. with me so this makes more sense i have to admit a lot more sense so let's look at some of the interesting words and choices of ideas that are found there in revelation 21 through 3 you have um you have an angel coming down who's going to do this binding so i mean i wrote a whole book on the angel of the lord and i s- suggest that the angel of the lord is christ pre-incarnate however He appears in an angelic kind of form sometimes in the New Testament, for example, at the Transfiguration. 
his face shown. I mean, he, he is the closest example we have of what happens at that point is it's like the glory, the veils lifted, the glory is shown and he's there like, like the angel of the Lord right in front of them. Um, Revelation's doing the same thing in my opinion, and it does it in this particular instance by saying he came down from heaven. Well, if John and Revelation are parallel books, who is it that comes down from heaven in the book of John? In fact, he says no one has descended or no one has ascended into heaven except the one who came down from heaven. It's himself. So Christ is the one who's who's coming down in that verse. What's he coming down to do? Well, he's coming down to bind the devil. So what does that mean? Does it mean that he throws iron chains on a being that isn't even physical? What does that mean? Well, binding was language that's used in the Old Testament. It's used throughout the intertestamental language for spiritual creatures, but also for, which in their mind would have kind of been overlapping, things like stars, constellations. So you can bind the uh, Pleiades and the Orion in um, the book of Job. You can bind the watchers in the book of Enoch. And what are you doing? You can bind the sea in the book of Jeremiah. What do you, why, why would you bind the sea? So that, so that it can't exist anymore? So that it's nowhere near us? No. You bind the sea so that it won't transgress its boundaries, so that it won't become chaotic and flood the whole world again. You bind the Pleiades so that they are forced into their courses so that they never move, so that they can be perfect um, time clocks uh, in, the, in the heavenlies. Oh, wow. And that kind of yeah. idea. So, so what is the binding then? Well, it's a, in my opinion, it's a legal covenant. Satan is forced now legally because of something that Jesus has done, namely conquered him um, at the death and resurrection, from right. doing something very specific. I'll get to what he's bound from here in a moment. I want you to think about a couple other things. He's thrown into the abyss. The abyss. Well, a lot of people read that, and with no other background, they go, oh, okay, well, that just means he's thrown into a dark, dark prison. He can never get out. Well, what's interesting is the abyss is actually where Leviathan, that we brought up earlier, is said to live. That's his home. And it, but in John himself, even in this very chapter, he likens Satan to the dragon, who is the mm-hmm. Leviathan. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Well, I think that it, what, what it means is that he's confined him to his home, and he's put him under house arrest. When someone's under house arrest, they're not in, they're, you know, they're not carted off to, uh, um, some penitentiary uh, on an island somewhere, they're, mm-hmm. they're just confined to their house and they have to stay there. They're not allowed to leave that place. But they can run their whole kingdom from it. That's what Martha Stewart did when she was placed under house arrest. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right? what I thought about. Capone, when he said, yeah. It's what Al Capone yeah. did when he was put under house arrest. Yep. They still yeah. ran their whole kingdom. It doesn't mean that he's not capable of doing anything. He's just thrown, he's just forced to be in his home. And what's he forced to do? Well, Revelation is very specific. It doesn't say that Satan 
is now bound from doing all things. He's no longer able to tempt. He's no longer able to um, have any interaction, any interaction with humanity. No, it's very specific. He says he can no longer deceive the nations. Period. That's it. So if I'm right, then that means that when Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that can happen simultaneous to him being bound. Because God didn't put any restrictions in that sense on him. What he put restrictions on was a legal binding so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Now, has that happened? And the answer to that is yes. And if any, you know, I'm sure that many of the listeners and you, you guys certainly know about the divine counsel worldview, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Totally. This is very important. And, it, and anybody who knows this worldview can actually, uh, this will actually make a lot of sense to them when they think about this. So that, the whole point of that worldview is that at the Tower of Babel, God gave the nations over to the gods and the gods were now going to rule over the, the nations. And what Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17, um, and this is based on things like Psalm 82, where they ruled uh, unjustly and they did perverted things and they did not lead the nations to the proper worship of Yahweh like they were supposed to. They took that worship for themselves. They fell into great sin. And what Paul says then to the Athenians is that, look, God is very near to eat all of you, but you've been groping around in darkness and hoping you might feel your way to him. Why? Because the gods have deceived the nations. And the nations are not, were not then led to him, and they were in darkness. This was going on all the way even before the days of Abraham, apparently, because God had to call Abraham specifically, well, Abram at that time, right? Specifically out of Babylon, I believe actually from worshiping the moon god. I think his whole family was a high priestly family in the moon god worship. That's a different subject. <laughs> yes, but, I, I um, can see that. But, uh, uh, and that actually relates to the whole Allah and Islam thing, by the way, too, which is pretty interesting. But uh, um, the point is that he was in darkness himself, and it wasn't in, until God actually called him, specially by name, and said, I'm going to take you to the land, and I'm going to make a nation out of you, and nothing's going to stop this. Um, you will now be a light to the nations. And Israel would be this light that would draw people up this hill up this mountain so that they could all come to know the Lord. Well, of course that didn't happen, but it was still there. And what ends up happening is that Jesus ends up becoming that light and that mountain that draws the people upwards that Isaiah 2 talks about. And mm -hmm. then he gives that power to his church, his body on earth. And so the whole book of Acts then is the reversal of the darkness and the nations now are coming to Christ, following um, him, um, learning who the true God is, having faith in him. And what they're doing is they are, Satan is no longer deceiving the nations. That's what the whole book of Acts is about. And when you understand that he was deceiving the nations until that moment, and now he no longer is, all of a sudden the binding of Revelation 20 makes a lot of sense because you can go, yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that. He, he actually isn't deceiving the nations as he was before. 
Now, some people will say, yeah, but a lot of people aren't saved. Of course they're not saved. It doesn't mean he's not, he's not deceiving individuals. What it means is that if God wants to bring a Gentile out of darkness in China or Kenya or Sweden or America, he can do that, and they don't have to become Jews. They don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to live under Mosaic law. That's all been taken care of. And that's exactly what we've been seeing for 2,000 years. Satan literally yeah. is bound from uh, stopping God's plans with the church. He can't do it. And that's proof to me that we're in the millennium, because that's literally what the millennium is about. Mm. Here's a, yeah, here's a yep. verse from the Gospel of Nicodemus. This just shows you some early thinking on this. It says, Then the king of glory seized the chief ruler Satan by the head and handed him over to the angels, saying, Bind with iron fetters his hand and his feet and his neck and his mouth. And he gave him to Hades and said, Take and hold him fast until my second coming. <laughs> so somebody wow. a long, 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 long time ago had this very same idea. That's a... It's, I'm just still overwhelmed. <laughs> it's just this is wow, brain brain tilt. <laughs> this is incredible. I mean, it, Revelation makes more sense to me. I mean, I've read it, you know, bunches of times, and, and it's hard to flee from the whole dispensational. Even when you don't really believe it anymore, you still you still find yourself like wanting to do it linear and in, in categories and stuff. And but this is amazing. This is amazing. Yep. I, I know that there's, I, I've thrown a ton at you guys, but you know, it kind of is necessary because if, if I'm going to present, oh, the yeah. view, I've got to find some way to make sense of it. So, <laughs> yep. 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 Yeah. It's a fire hose, but it's a, it's a very welcome fire hose. <laughs> you know, and to me, this doesn't really, what I'm, what I'm presenting helps me make sense of what's happened the last 2000 years. Um, right. it helps me make sense of how, uh, the devil can still be at play. And yet the millennium is still, we're, we're still in it. Um, mm. and it helps me make sense of at least to some degree, what's taking place right now. Uh, and what's taking place right now causes me then at the same time, because of what we started with, when we talked about, um, you know, are we living in unprecedented times? And I think we are. And it causes me to go, you know, this is not, the, the binding of Satan is not the end of the story. And too many amillennialists, in my opinion, act like it is. Like, okay, we can never get out of, the, the millennium will never be over. So why think about what's coming in the future? But the fact is, all of us, all, all the millennial views have in them a time when Satan will be let loose and he will be incredibly angry and go against the church and then Jesus will take care of him. Whether you say that that's after the millennium, like I do, or you say that it's before the millennium, like a premillennialist does, we all kind of have the same thing. And I think even postmillennialism has that uh, at least as a possibility in some cases for it to take place. So in other words, we all have something horrible happening in it at the end. None of us know when it's going to happen. None of us know exactly what it's going to look like. But it right. is there in all of our views because we're all still reading Revelation at the end of the day. And we know that, um, we know that uh, things happen starting in uh, verse 7 of chapter 20. 
And then we know that some point in time, Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, which is a very different idea than being thrown into the abyss. Yes. Yes, very different. So even though it might challenge some people to, to kind of think the way that I've thought here, don't take that to mean that uh, I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not even willing to entertain future, futurist sort of thoughts. I, I am willing to entertain them, but I'm not willing to be dogmatic about them. Yes, yes. Yeah, I don't think this is a topic to be dogmatic about at all. And I think what you said earlier, which I agree with, it goes harkens back to the early fathers, is, you know, there are multiple orthodox views. And I, I just don't want to see, you know, people, some people act like if you don't believe in the rapture, that that you're a heretic. And that's just not, that's not historical Christian teaching. So what about giants and Nephilim? How do they fit into <laughs> some of this? stuff so if they fit into it at all at um, all yeah if they fit into it at all at all i i do not think so a lot of people are throwing out this daniel reference where like the seed of i forget what how it goes the seed of somebody is mingled with the seed of men or something like that and they go oh this is nephilim and it's and then the way they read that particular prophecy it has to be talking about our future well i, I don't think that that verse is talking about the nephilim at all like angels aren't even in that to be mingling with the seed of men. You're, people are totally making that up. It's not in the text as far as I've been able to see. Maybe it's some, maybe it's some version of Daniel that I'm not aware of, but I don't see any angels so, so that one is not one that I am fond of saying uh, could bring back the, the Nephilim. Um, but uh, I think that when Jesus talks about how the days of Noah, you know, the days of his coming will be like the days of Noah. Right. We could, we actually could go on a, a little sub point of, of this. This is a, this is Matthew 24 and I could give you kind of my reading of this. So this is the, uh, this is the Olivet discourse where uh, many people on the popular level take this to be the entire thing is about the future. And Brandon, you were talking about uh, um, pre- you know, partial preterism, and I, I, I am a partial preterist, and I actually read this particular sermon uh, kind of simplistically as essentially the first half of it is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and the second half of it is talking about his second coming. Yeah, that's what I was talking about earlier, Doug, when I was saying how, how I think we read some things Jesus is going one direction and he's going another direction. I mean, we uh-huh. can we can change gears in conversation, you know, and, and but but we tend to lump them all together. We do. So if we read this carefully, this is what it says. Jesus left the temple, and as he was going away, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them and said, You see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All right, so that's what he says. This is prediction. Then it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so they, 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 they're in Jerusalem, they're looking at the temple. He's just predicted the whole thing's going to be obliterated. Now they cross over the Kidron Valley. They go up the Mount of Olives. Now they're looking back over at it, and the disciples privately say to him, hey, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. So 
The way almost everybody reads that is it's the same question. When will these things be, will take place at the coming at the end of the age? But I believe Jesus sees these as two different questions. When will these things be? Okay, I'll tell you when they will be. And then he predicts all the things that will lead up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. All you have to do is read Josephus to know that Jesus got it exactly right. Exactly right, yeah. yeah. Exactly right. So the first, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 verses, whatever it is of that, essentially is talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. However, Jesus takes the second part, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And then he shifts subjects. And he tells them what it will be like. And at that point in time, we now move to the future. And that is the section where we find the whole days of Noah thing taking place. Mm. No one knows the day or the hour. So back in in verse 36, now he's changed the subject. Because look, it says, but concerning that day and hour, what day and hour? The day and hour that that the temple will be destroyed? No, he just told you exactly when that was going to be. He told you exactly what to look for, and all the Christians fled Jerusalem when it happened so that they weren't killed. Right. He, he knew exactly when that was going to be. But of this day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Then he says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when the, Noah entered the ark. They were unaware of the flood until it came and swept all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So my thought has been, as an amillennialist who knows that he had dispensational, you know, <laughs> bringings up and wonders, am I, am I still going there? And I don't, I don't know if I am or not. But all I know is that the story about marrying and giving in marriage is the Nephilim story. Mm. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And why would you say that? Like, why would you bring that up if it wasn't going to be the same way again? So to me, I think that that, that, that verse um, certainly allows for the possibility that Nephilim will be back. I also think that you, you could maybe get the whole idea of the watchers sort of doing the same thing again from the, from the unleashing of Satan. Like, what does that mean? And especially if the other angels were locked up in to Taurus, Tartarus, um, according to Enoch and other, and really Peter. Um, and if, if they're let loose, maybe they could do something like that again. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. If it happens, I'm going to try not to be surprised if it happens in my lifetime. If it doesn't happen, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be too worried about it. <laughs> so Doug, how- how do you uh, interpret verse 31 for that first half? Look, yeah, it's hard to get past that. This generation will not certainly pass away until these things have happened. I, I've never been satisfied with the, the more futurist explanations of the word this generation. They just all. Yes. But 31 is yeah. difficult, too. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect um, from the four winds from one end of heavens to the other. Um, yeah, so I know that there are preterist readings of this that guys like Gentry um, mm-hmm, have dealt with, it, and I think yeah. that they deal with it pretty well. I don't know that I agree with them. I think that this is one of the verses, I don't remember, that um, R.T. France in his commentary on Matthew 
that came out, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that, uh, before he died. It's just magisterial commentary. And he takes the view that I'm kind of giving of this all of it discourse, which is kind of an already not yet thing. A, a guy like Gentry, a, 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 a true preterist in the 70 AD sense, he, he does not think any of this is dealing with the future. I do. And I think that this might be one of those verses that's in the earlier parts that France goes, yeah, that's probably talking about the second coming. Um, but okay. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but I do know when I said, when I said that the first half is the 70 AD, the second, second half is the second coming. I said, that's generally speaking because of the very question that you just asked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well let me interject something too. And I don't know if it, this is just something when you were sitting there talking about that, Doug, I was thinking about the fact that, okay, you have one one part of this is dealing with the Jews, and basically in AD seventy, the the, the Jews were uh, they weren't wiped out, obviously, but their religion was. Yeah, you know, even to this day, yeah, even to this day, there's no temple, so they're not complete in their worship. However, I find it interesting that when he switches gears, he doesn't talk about a Jew; he talks about a Gentile. I mean, I don't know if I'm wrong here, but Noah is a Gentile, correct? No, that's not correct. Those categories didn't exist. So that's anachronistic okay. to bring that back okay. to Noah. Okay. Okay. All right. But I was I was just I, I saw this parallel of maybe that he was referring to the inclusions or the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles or the other people outside the Jewish faith. But yeah, you're right. It it is anachronistic. So yeah. That way wouldn't work. I'm just speculating here. <laughs> But but I, I just wondered if if that was because then it goes on and talks about um, uh, this will not happen in this this generation. And he might be talking. I thought he might maybe talking about the Jews. And then there's another generation of the of people outside the Jewish faith that, that the, the other could happen to. I don't know. Maybe I'm butchering the text. I don't want to do that. So. Yeah, the whole the whole Jew Gentile question is totally wrapped up in what we're talking about. Um, and it's a it's a really tough one. Uh, see if I can find this note here. Um, okay, so he, here's the thing. Like, if you go to the beginning of Romans nine, um, Paul talks about uh, how he he wishes that the people of his own race, his biological Jewish brothers, would be yeah. saved and not be hardened. Right. Right. So. He, he has this category for physical Jews. Earlier in the book, at the end of chapter 2, he essentially calls anybody who has faith in Christ a Jew. He makes this wordplay on um, Judah. Yeah. Yeah. His praise yeah. is from God, his Judahness. And so a true Jew in that book is a believer in Christ. And the reason why is because he is true Israel. He's everything Israel was supposed to be and failed at. And so now true Jewishness comes through him. So the hard thing with this is that you have true Jewishness, but you never actually lose biological Jewishness. Any more than, any more than me as a Dutch, you know, guy with a Dutch last name loses that Dutch heritage, I will always have that. But I'm an American, you know, I'm a, I, and I'm a Christian. And so... There's these different aspects of what's going on there. Mm. And so 
the question of what does it mean, you know, at the end of chapter 11, when Paul then talks about how, and all Israel will be saved, what is that talking about? Is he talking about the church? Is he talking about biological Jews? Well, even people in my own amillennial circles totally disagree on this question. They don't know the answer to it. Yeah. Um, you, you can go to other places that, that make this kind of thorny. Um, in fact, even in Revelation, you have Jerusalem being mentioned in two totally different ways. Uh, you have Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, Rome, and Jerusalem, all in a couple of chapters of each other, all spoken about the same way as the evil city. And I said Jerusalem is one of those. Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, Rome, and Jerusalem, all talked about very much as evil city. But then you have um, this kind of new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, and you have uh, the camp of the saints in you know, the end of Revelation 20. What's that talking about? Talking about Jews? Is it talking about believers? I have my own opinions on it, but people disagree on that question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, so, that's, that's baffled me too. Yeah. You know, I, I, I tend to think that, that in Revelation, and this kind of gets to some temple stuff too, you know, a lot of people are looking for a rebuilt temple, uh, right. a, third, a third temple, a physical temple, and that's mostly premillennials that are looking for that. Will there be one? You know, as an amillennialist, I'm like, I don't really care if there is or not. There might be. I don't know. But what I do know for 100% certain is that Jesus says that his church is the temple. Yep. And he says that he is the temple. Yeah. That's unequivocal. And people just kind of skip right past that. And it's not spiritualizing. Like I said earlier, the spiritual reality is reality and it is literal. He is the temple and his church is the temple. And those who believe in him are the temple. So why in the world do we need another temple being built that is a type and a shadow of the reality that's already here? Well, yeah. I, I again, I have my own opinion on that. Will there be another temple in the future that's built? Will it be torn down? I have absolutely no idea. I don't, I don't personally think that that has anything to do with prophecy, but I could be wrong about that. I don't know. Because there still is this physical aspect of Israel that never goes away in the Bible. Right. Yeah. Well, and two, the New Jerusalem, in my understanding, in the book of Revelation, is going to take the place of the temple we're going to be the temple in the new Jerusalem, like you said, you know, and there's, there's always going to be light and, and that the imagery there is that we are the actual temple and not a building. Just like we are the actual new Jerusalem. When you read some, this is where the, the chiasm is very interesting and helpful. I can't remember the specifics right now, but when you read that part of revelation, guess what your opposite is in revelation. So when you're in chapter 21, where it's talking about right. the New Jerusalem, your counterpart in Revelation is the seven churches. Interesting. And so a lot of the same words then reappear in the last two chapters that are found in those chapters on the churches in Revelation. And the, the conclusion then is, I think it's a double conclusion. One is that this New Jerusalem is already here. It has already come down out of heaven. The other one, though, is that there is a future reality to it that is even better than is what is already here. That's the amazing part about reading the book uh, when right. you read it like this, because it's not like it's not like the second 
half of the book is identical to the first half. It adds stuff to it, but it also overlaps it. And so again, you kind of have the already not yet. So I don't read Revelation 21 as fully future, but I also don't read it as fully past. Uh, yep, that makes sense. Wow. And again, that kind of goes back to the new a the 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 two age overlap that I talked about at the very beginning, right? Where the age to come and the and the and the present evil age they're here simultaneous. Yeah. Well, I don't ever want to put too fine a point on it, but I think you firmed my amillennialism back up a little bit there. <laughs> you know, sometimes I just want to be lazy and say, ah, whatever, you know, Revelation 20 sounds, yeah, it's just easier to say that's literal, but it just, it creates so much more problems to me, you know, that people don't want to deal with. Yeah. You know, I've seen it. It's been interesting the last three years um, with two things going on at the same time. And uh, hopefully you guys won't get kicked off and be, not be allowed to post this uh, because of what I'm going to say here. But the, t the two things are that you have this weird dualistic thing happening at the same time the last three years. You have this horrible uh, attack on humanity um, in the form of this virus and vaccine and all the things associated with the war that they're perpetrating in Ukraine, the whole thing. So that if you're yeah. reading this eschatologically, you can go, oh, premillennialism all the way, baby, because things are getting worse. At the same right. time that this is happening, you have this weird phenomenon of the 17th letter of the alphabet, <laughs> this Q thing, that a lot of those people hear this and they read this and, and it's almost like they read it and become post-millennial. Like, oh my goodness, look, at, if this is going to happen, then everything really is going to get better very quickly. And I just think that's really strange and interesting. And, and as I was going through Revelation here in the midst of all this and thinking about all the stuff I just mentioned, my mind right. kept going, well, man, maybe, maybe the premillennials have something. And then, I, and then I would go, man, I don't know if, if the Q thing's right. Maybe the postmillennialists have something. And then I came across a quote from, I think, Vern Poitras, where he essentially says, all the views... Uh, have their own strengths and weaknesses, but amillennialism is the one of one view among them all that's able to kind of incorporate all the aspects that they have into its own system. So that's that, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it really was interesting to me because, you know, as I as I've gotten away from the study over the course of the last couple of years, just naturally, and and uh, you know, let let time distance itself from the crazy events of 2020, especially, you know, maybe it's more natural to just kind of revert to what I've already been in. But to me, the pre-bill and post-mill thing, it kind of seems to me, it kind of has to be one or the other, but we've already talked about overlaps here with post-mill and pre-mill with George Ladd in the view that I hold. And so it yeah. kind of makes me feel like, yeah, well, maybe, maybe the on-mill thing is able to account for the totality of it, even though it still has its problems in a way that the others don't. So I've still remained on mill after all this stuff. 
correct me if I'm wrong, some of the Dutch Reformed guys are very futuristic and still very odd mill. Yes, I, yeah. The, the, so I can't think of their in all their names right now, but yeah, the well, we've really only talked about the millennial question, right? But there's another totally different set of principles to read the book, which is do you do you read the whole book as taking place in the future? So a futurist. Do you read it all as taking place as preterist? So in other words, in other words, Revelation all took place in 70 AD. And that's what that's what Ken Gentry's new commentary is going to be about. There's another way of reading the book, which is that throughout history, the historicist view, the book unfolds progressively through history. And in fact, this is the question where Poitras says, of the futurist, preterist, historicist, all of these schools have merit, but the Amil view is able to, to incorporate the best of all of them. And I think that's probably true. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm starting to see that, yeah, the Amil, um, it's, 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 I guess, in, in my Anglican world, I would say it's the Vea Media, you know, it's the, it's the best, <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. That's Van Halen there. But anyway, um, so, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it does, it, it includes, you can, I don't want to say pick and choose cause that, that's off. That's what, yeah, that's just modern religion, but, but it, it does, there is the, the ability to be able to, see the different like the strengths and and them being welcomed into that viewpoint that's and i've never really done a deep study of amillennialism that's what's so amazing about this is i've studied post-millennialism because that's what a lot of anglicans tend to be and and then i was raised you know dispensational so i know both of those but but i thought amillennial was augustine and and in the anglican church he's he's kicked on a lot no people don't poor augustine you know he gets a lot of trash talk and uh <laughs> which which i don't think is 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 deserving so but uh yeah thank you for enlightening me i mean really yeah. this is this is a, an amazing way to look at the the end times and a amazing amazing way to look at uh, the world now because i can still be cautious and and uh I don't like the word worry because we're not called to worry, but be cautious and prepared for different things. Because I, I told a friend the other day, even if we're not in the end of the end times, that doesn't mean we're not in the end of the United States. I mean, yeah, exactly. How many nations and fall. have fallen and Jesus hasn't returned? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't mean that I don't need to be prepared for persecution or prepared for what, what, what will happen? I don't. I, I personally don't think a country would invade us. I mean, all China would have to do is just pull their debt, and we're gone. You know. I mean, anyway, they don't have to send a single soldier over here. Anyway, th this is my political rant. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's the Western arrogance that, or American arrogance. And I love America. I'm a patriot, you know, and, and all this stuff. But is that is that arrogance that so goes America, so goes the end times. And, and a millennial can correct that as well. You can anyway. help it out. I mean, it's, it's, isn't it interesting that, I mean, I don't know what you guys think about this, but I've given you kind of a view of revelation and the end times that really doesn't look at modern, uh, 
political yeah. theory and the stuff that's happening. And at the same time, I may be more interested publicly in what's happening politically than anybody that I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. And so people yeah. kind of just assume that, oh, well, you must, you must either be thinking that it's the end times right now because, uh, uh, you know, things are getting worse and, and they just tie all that stuff or they'll say, oh, well, you must believe that we're, you must be post mill. And, and because you're, you, you know, you sound like the Q guys and you sound like you think there's hope in a war and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, no, to me, none of this, I'm not, I'm not, whether, whether it is in time stuff or not, I just don't know the answer to it. And so therefore I am going to look at what's happening around me, uh, on both sides of this war. And I'm going to try and be honest with what, with the information that's been presented to me, uh, yes. the things that I think that are happening with it. And I'm going to yes. look at it through the lenses of politics. I'm going to look at it through the lens of God's sovereignty. I'm going to look at it through the lenses of, of, uh, um, a whole bunch of different things. And, uh, I'm going to try and be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Yeah. I'm going to try and prepare yes. myself for the worst and hope for the best. And think that yes. I have reasons for thinking, uh, hopefully, not necessarily in a in a uh, pie in the sky, hopefully way. Well, well, God will just deal, you know. We'll I'll, I'll yeah. go to heaven when I die. That's true. I, I have hope <laughs> in that, but you know, um, I I'm not running to my eschatology to inform me on either side of what I think is happening in this world. That's a separate thing. It it matters. It's important. It's always there for me. Jesus is going to return someday. Uh, Satan will be released someday if he hasn't already. Um, the nations are still being saved, as far as I can tell. <laughs> People are still Absolutely. coming to know the Lord. So yes. all that is kind of going on as normal. Things are getting weirder and weirder in the spiritual realm. I'm going to keep my eyes on that. My eschatology will inform me of that. There's some overlap with it, but I'm not, I'm not using my eschatology to tell people what I think is happening in this world. It just, that's just not what I do. And people are really surprised by that. They don't really know how to deal with it. <laughs> well, it's just, it's just not a hill that you're going to die on. Justification by faith is a hill you'll die on, you know? But, exactly. but this, is just, this is just not a hill, but it is important. And, it, and it, you know, it'll help you. Yeah, you, you can, like I said, you can um, have a newspaper in one hand and a, a Bible in the other, but not, not be as worried about the newspaper. I mean, it, it's just an, its own entire entity, so to speak. Cause I think it would be a tremendously foolish. A lot of people just kind of ignore the news and ignore what's going on in the world and, you know, hope for pie in the sky. But then the others are the Hal Lindsey types that, that everything uh, in the newspaper is something. So yeah, I, I, I'm amazed at, at how you've uh, just laid this out before us and how much I uh, agree. Not that I expected to disagree with you at all, but it was just I've never heard I'm a millennial. And this is a very um, interesting viewpoint of eschatology, in my opinion now. So, yeah. so well, Doug, let's, let's wrap it up. I appreciate you so much for coming on yeah, our show. Thanks, man. And, uh, yep, we'll have you back sometime for something else. And, and, uh, you have a book called conspiracy theories that I'm reading right now. And, and that'd be fun to take a, a deep depth. Well, I'm glad you guys had me on and talk about this. This is not something like you said, I don't get to talk about it 
a lot. I kind of did a little thing with the blurry creatures, but it was mostly focused on Satan. That one hasn't come out yet. This has been a deep dive into subject that I really am. I'm really, I'm really thankful to you guys for letting me talk about this because, um, I think it's important to help other people think through what's going on in the world today. And, um, yes. And you know, most, most of the podcasts in, in our realm is so focused on the supernatural stuff that, um, sitting down to get a little bit more grounded in our theology can be very helpful to that whole world. I think. Yeah. 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 Well, and, that, and that's kind of the niche that we're, we're trying to go after is I want to be able to talk about uh, of theology just as much as cryptids or the Nephilim or any of that kind of stuff too, because they, they're to me, they're all intertwined. They're all God's world and they're all supernatural. Yep. So any, any time we deal with, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are, we're entering a eternal life or a supernatural realm. So, it doesn't have to be novelty supernatural, is what I like you know call some of that. I mean, it's it's not novelty, but it can become novelty. So, it can and become it can become um, addicting and and uh, yes, you know, obsessive. Yes. yes, especially if you don't have the other grounding to be able to help you think through it, then. It's kind of like that's all you have to hold on to. And at some point in time, that's going to fail you just like anything else will. Absolutely. I mean, people have asked me, you know, how how do you keep a sane mind when you look at all the occult stuff and all that kind of stuff? I said, well, the first thing is I'm grounded in the word. I mean, I'm not bragging, but I do Professor Horner's Bible study. And that's Hmm. uh, one of the best Bible studies, Bible study reading plans out there. You know, you get such a grasp of the entire gambit of scripture you know, reading that, and I'm trying to start some Bible study groups with you know people using that that Bible study, where you can see the Bible as a whole, and you're in the Old Testament instead of just picking our favorite New Testament books. And uh, so, but yeah, well, thank you, Doug. We appreciate it. always a pleasure yeah, to have you man. on our show, and we'll see you soon. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening and supporting us. And remember, stay naturally supernatural.